happy Halloween. This is Ash Harry with Film Exploration, and we conclude our Halloween special during season three, which, by the way, is still focusing on 70s movies. And our conclusion to our 70s Halloween special will end with one of my favourite horror films ever made, if you can even call it a horror movie. It is the famous 1973 Robin Hardy film, The Wicker Man, written by Anthony Schaefer and starring Edward Woodward, Britt Eklund and Christopher Lee. A classic among classics, a film designed to scare you despite the majority of this film set in daylight. A truly underrated subgenre of the horror movies. How do you scare people in the daytime? I mean, darkness is a true, natural, innate fear we're all born with, so the job is half done when a horror movie is done at night, or the tense horror scenes are happening during the dark hours. The first sort of American Hollywood film to tackle this with such commercial success was The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was actually made a year after The Wicker Man came out. And this movie went on to inspire directors like Ridley Scott to do Alien and uh, Wes Craven to do, you know, um, A Nightmare on Elm Street with Freddy Krueger. And also he did the uh, the Scream movies with Ghostface. And they got the idea to make their villains really scary, you know, lurking around the corner. Now, obviously, both directors with their respected horror movies didn't use this idea of daylight. Instead, choosing to make their key villain key villains in like... Freddy Krueger or Alien or Ghostface, extremely scary with the with the darkness and them lurking around the corner. And it made for a really good horror movie and that sort of caught on in the 90s and especially past the millennium. However, you know, there was a British film that did it a year prior. But the thing that is ridiculous about it is, is it doesn't focus on a soul killer or a serial killer or someone chasing you around with a chainsaw or knife or saliva acid. No, what Robin Hardy did with The Wicker Man was something no one had ever thought about doing ever in a movie. He simply didn't allow anyone, including the audience, to show who the villain was. Instead, allowing us to try and figure it out. No one was behind a mask. No one is chasing you with a knife. But it shocked audiences to a T because no one had even attempted to scare people in this sort of way. It's a film that was scary in its own way and people just couldn't understand it. The very absence of darkness and cheap frights was the sole purpose of why it was so scary, allowing audiences to engage in a full sense of security, but psychologically twisting your head into this strange film that is now considered the Citizen Kane of horror. The question is how to make a daytime film scary. Things just don't hide in the shadows. Nothing jumps out at you. Nothing is confined in a dark corner. The daytime horror is a truly underappreciated subgenre at the moment, and it still is. Texas Chainsaw Massacre started this sort of trend that never really got going and that's because of the following decades and what they did with horror movies. 80s had this trend of using extreme violence and gore to really solidify the horror aspect of the movie with films like uh, Cannibal Holocaust, Gremlins for instance, Hellraiser, The Aliens, Reanimator and then the 80s also offered this psychological horror but within the confines of a house or hotel or somewhere eerie like in The Shining or The Thing. And this was all done in conventional scary ways like using over-the-top monsters, special effects, dark houses, remote locations. It was doing this throughout the 80s with these movies and the 90s did exactly the same thing with these movies like Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. And then they started the psychological thriller following films which had serial killers like Silence of the Lamb and Seven and so on. So it never really got kick-started with what Texas Chainsaw Massacre had started. 
And the first real escape from this sort of repeated style was just past the millennium, actually with Blair Witch Project, where it took a different style to display in a horror movie. Now, with all that said, Blair Witch Project, Aliens, The Thing, Scream are all set at night. It was just part of the formula for a horror movie. It was a no-brainer. Even though the Blair Witch Project tried something different with handheld camera, they still set it at night. It was basically a character and it was all, it was almost mandatory to have the backdrop to a movie of being darkness, especially one that is meant to scare you. So how did the Wicker Man manage to do this with the whole movie set during the daytime? You don't uh, have to look too far back. I mean, if you look at really good directors, I mean, in fact, Hitchcock, the brilliant director that he was, actually tried this daytime attempt of horror with the birds. However, as the years went on, it was described for its time as extremely violent, and that itself took away the thunder of the boldness and bravery of shooting a horror movie during the day. You know, that being said, though, Hitchcock did use this horrifying violence portrayed in this movie as this unique selling point to make sure that it was a true horror. And violence or gore has this conventional horror movie, you know, they sort of tend to take away the artistry of how to make something scary, and violence is sort of a cheap way of doing it, which is why, you know, the Saw movies are great and everything, but they really depend on the gore of the movie to sell to audiences. Now, what The Wicker Man does is removes the feeling of danger with the use of the darkness. How many times do you hide behind a cushion when someone is creepily walking through the corridors of a house during a rainstorm in a nicely lit way during the evening? You are on alert when that happens. The film is suggesting something bad is about to happen. With this 70s movies, with The Wicker Man, it forces you to acknowledge everything and without a safety net. You are led to believe nothing is going to happen from the sheer terror of the title of the movie. Your guard instantly goes up, but the movie plays so well at fighting this. We identify fear from the unknown. There is this darkness. We can't see it. We can't see in it. It's thrown out of the window in The Wicker Man. There is no trigger warning at all to prepare you for anything, you as the audience, except with open arms from this terror of this community step by step who happens to be really friendly. This means by theory, everyone and anything can be dangerous because the threat is invisible because it's everywhere, right in front of you, not behind you in the shadows, not behind you in the darkness, ready to jump out at you or when you're walking through the corridor. And this is why this film was so talked about as one of the scariest films of all time. It scared people because it did something different. It's why the Blair Witch Project was so scary. It's why Paranormal Activity was so scary. They're finding new ways to scare you. So, what is The Wicker Man about? To call it a horror movie is stretching some strings here. However, without sounding pretentious, this is a movie that doesn't need to give you those quick frights and over-the-top gore or vile language to make it horrific. It simply relies on telling a story of a relatable man going through some unrelatable things. So the movie opens with Sergeant Howie, who's a devoted Catholic, and he gets an unknown tip to say that there's a girl missing on the island of Summersar, which is on the west coast of Scotland. Now, he's a, he's a police officer and a really good one by the sounds of it. So when he arrives on the island, no one seems to know who this missing girl is, despite the really small population. As we carry on in this film, we learn that the island practices in pagan rituals and have certain beliefs that, of course, contradict everything Sergeant Howie believes in himself as a man of God and, of course, as a man of the law. Now, he believes the island is part of a conspiracy of denying the existence of this girl and something far greater is going on involving her. Of course, when we get to the shock revelation at the end of 
the movie. This is what people remember as probably one of the greatest endings in a film ever and probably one of the most horrific scenes without trying to be. Christopher Lee, um, I mean, everyone knows who he is. I mean, he's a cinematic legend who's done, he's done films like Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. He's been in the Young Indiana Jones movie. He's done the Bond movie. He's got over 200 acting credits to his name. And he has said repeatedly that this movie, The Wicker Man, is his greatest role ever. And he even goes far as to say it's the, it's his most favorite film that he's done. In fact, that he's watched. He loved it so much that he worked for the movie for free. He even paid for the press junket for the movie. It just demonstrates how much he loved this film. And someone who is in the cinema circle of Hollywood, especially a legend like the late Christopher Lee, who played Lord Summers in this movie, just emphasizes this movie as being one of the greats. And in fact, a classic that is going to survive throughout decades, centuries to come. In fact, the Bond movie, just I'm kind of babbling here, but the Bond movie that he did was um, The Man of the Golden Gun. Um, and if I remember correctly, and I hope I am, Britt Eklund, who's also in The Wicker Man, was also in The Man of the Golden Gun. So that marks their second appearance together, which I only realized when I went on IMDb the other day. And staying on the theme of Bond, one of the Bond, uh, one of the actors in this movie, Diane Saletto, I think she plays the teacher in this movie. She was married to Sean Connery. So there you go. That's me babbling. Should be six degrees of Christopher Lee, not Kevin Bacon, but hey. But um, going back to Brick Eglin, I mean, she was this gorgeous knockout. She was a blonde woman from Sweden who was like the Angelina Jolie of the 70s. And she, of course, was one of the main selling points for this movie because there was a lot of talk about her nude scene in this movie, which, by the way, is a dancing scene for her to seduce Officer Howie in the next room. But that scene, I read, took over 12 hours to shoot, which is a lot of hours for a movie that lasts minutes. But in the movie, she was sort of happy to do the scene naked, but the director actually got a stunt double for her. Uh, well, I say stunt double. They got a bottom stunt double for her. And she didn't even know this until the movie was released. And she was fuming with the movie. And, of course, the director uh, didn't know what to say. Um but I think it was his choice. Um, she was actually pregnant at the time of filming this movie, although you can't tell, but I assume that had something to do with the director's decision. And another reason Britt Eklund sort of distanced herself from this movie is because her voice is dubbed by another actor because her Scottish accent wasn't convincing enough. So, I mean, she does have every reason to distance herself from it, but it's still one of the, she's still one of the main stars of this horror movie. And I think, you know, if someone says Britt Eklund, people don't go the man of the golden gun. People will probably go the wicker man. Um, for obviously the nude scene and obviously the the impact this movie had in its genre um as well but if you've watched it i mean it opens very oddly almost like the start of a soap or a police series and in fact in reality that is really what this movie is it's like an inspector morse episode in fact the movie hot fuzz is loosely based on the wicker man and even stars the main lead from this movie as well and the music used in this movie is so strange and almost cheery. Songs you would sing at a pub when wasted. In fact, one of the songs is done in a pub sung by the punters, but it totally misleads you into what this film is because of how happy everyone is. And it, it just sort of puts you on guard. And the true horror is actually happening in the background, which we never see. We just follow Sergeant Howie, try and undercover this mystery. And as we, the audience, are together with him in this, mu in, in this movie. And the music is just an odd and yet scary touch to this genre as it cleverly juxtaposes itself with the horrors happening in the background. Horrors have continued to do this with anything, are usually deemed quite cheery and happy. And horrors sort of try to 
go on these things to make it even more scary. That's why horror films have uh, mannequins, they have children's dolls, they have swings, empty playgrounds, balloons, these sort of things, which you know, which initially should be happy thoughts, really bring a sense of unease and mental fright when put in this world of this scary yet unacceptable or acceptable world of a horror movie. And, you know, when writing this movie, um, who was, it was written by Anthony Schaefer, he wanted this more to be a more literate. And today, this is what people, this is what re- people relate to. And that's what people, that's why people find this really scary. Um, if you've ever seen, if you know Ari Aster, he recently did a film called Midsummer or Midsummer with Florence Pugh. And it was a really big film. And I suspect the tide is turning into making things a little more literate. And I think we finally shied away from the intense gore and the little cheap frights and instead focus more on the raw horror in films that don't need to sugarcoat their scare factor with the use of darkness. And with Schaefer, he was ahead of his time saying that he specifically wanted a movie with a minimum of violence. He didn't want any violence or gore. He was tired of seeing horror movies that relied almost entirely on blood and guts. The focus of the movie was crystallized when he finally hit upon the abstract concept of sacrifice. And, you know, the sacrifice aspect is what no one expects. I mean, we do, but you don't expect it to be the main character. Spoiler alert, by the way. The odd thing about this movie is that the main character is quite an arsehole and, you know, we're led to believe he's the hero or the person we should follow. And he's a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and everything he finds on this island is destroying his faith and his religion. And, in, you know, it basically insults him. And there's no middle ground here. There's, you know, for atheists or scientists, it's one or the other. And truth be told, until right at the very end, the more appealing religion is that of the pagans. And this is done on purpose to really give you that scare factor right at the end. Because another thing, if I'm going to be blunt about this movie, is that nothing actually happens in this movie until the last 10 minutes. Like I said before, everything that is going on is happening in the background. And now if you've watched Blair Witch Project, the exact same thing happens. Nothing really happens in the Blair Witch Project until right at the end. But it's that psychological horror of something happening in the shadows or behind um, the main character that's not on film and that's what's really scary and the themes this film is trying to explore is the lesser of two evils and between two extreme religions or beliefs and what it comes down to is a clash of opinions and ideology i mean the message to i think the message to the audience is that you know this thing does exist and if you go back to sort of celtic history sacrifices is a big part of their beliefs and of course jesus again you know he was sacrificed and you know he sacrificed himself for everyone's sin so there is a similarity in that aspect but besides that everything else most you know most relevantly the sexual openness of the pagans to the stiffness of the catholic especially before marriage is seen to be sergeant howie's you know he, he finds that disgusting and appalling i think the idea of him being aggressive a man of the law and dominant in a place that does not really seem offended by his actions is done on purpose to really show maybe a subtle negativity towards his character as a catholic and towards his belief as a catholic but listen, you know, remember being an atheist back in the 70s was, you know, it was growing and it was taking a dig at both sides of the sort of religious spectrum. He, he's a man of the law in this film. We're inclined to follow him, but it doesn't necessarily mean we are liking him as a person. I mean, nothing we've seen yet is quite shocking in terms of what the pagans are doing. I mean, they're free minded. They're completely open of sex. They dance naked and they they care about their crops, their apples, and they worship a sun god. I mean, nothing about this seems alarming. However, under the surface, something is brewing 
brewing and it's just a little too friendly for us to take on the chin and it all revolves around this missing girl who we you know we're assuming they're going to sacrifice at the end now the film if you haven't seen it turns into a shocking twist where the missing girl is actually you know you assume she's going to be the sacrifice and she turns out to be a decoy because upon saving her right at the end he is set to be the main sacrifice for the island all along and in that we see him burn to death in the wicker man with the villagers singing and dancing in the hope that this will give them good crops and apples for next year's harvest after suffering an awful harvest the year before. I mean, one final thing I will mention with this movie and somewhat really eerie about it is it's done in a way that it doesn't it doesn't really follow any of the general rules of narrative at all. Now, with most films, majority of the films that, you know, we, we see on screen usually follow like four old school narrative techniques that movies still follow today. So there's this guy called Roland Barth, and he theorized that narrative works with different codes, which the reader tries to make sense of. So the most obvious is the use of Enigma codes. There are these little puzzles which the audiences need to solve throughout the plot. This makes us work, but gives us pleasure when we solve them correctly. Um, you know, as this is done in films all the time, mainly thrillers and even sometimes comedies like in Crazy Stupid Love, where you have to find out the connections between a character. Ron Howard does this really well with um, the Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons. You sort of you're trying to figure out as well as the character is and you sort of feel accomplished that you're doing it. So that's sort of one narrative uh, ideology. Then another one is a guy called Todorov, and he believes every film follows a narrative structure in terms of equilibrium or balance, meaning that at the start of a movie, we acknowledge what the balance is, and then something happens and it gets disrupted, and then for the rest of the movie, the you're trying to restore that. I mean, that pretty much happens in every movie. Um, for example, let's say Gladiator, the balance is he's, he's a general, the imbalance is that they, his family gets killed, and the rest of the movie is he's trying to get justice. And you can do this with pretty much every movie. An imbalance that's trying to, you know, you're just trying to restore the equilibrium that was uh, at the start of the movie. So there's a third narrative structure, and it's called Prop, like Todorov. Uh, Todorov is the name of the theorist who came up with Prop characters. He was a structuralist. And he was more concerned with characters and within a narrative, not much the narrative. And he believes that a narrative alone wouldn't exist without certain types of characters. So every film would have to have a villain and a hero and a helper and a donor and a sidekick. And this stems from fairy tales and comic books and even Greek mythology, where you have known characters. And most films, again, have these prop characters. And that's actually the exact name named after him. So if you look at Harry Potter, for instance, you can easily identify who the hero is, who the helpers are, who the psychic is, who the villain is, the false hero. Um, and, you know, in this dispatch, you can have this in every single movie. And the final uh, the final theorist suggests, and it's called Levi-Strauss, and he said that he suggested for a true narrative, you need conflict. And with conflict, you must have binary oppositions. And he says that every film works around that. So black versus white, man versus women, men versus monsters, east versus west. And films have this binary opposition happening in the movie. I mean, I was watching Rush the other day, a film about the F1 drivers, about two leads couldn't be, you know, these two leads couldn't be more different from each other. And that's what really drives a story. And there you have this sort of conflict. And you have this with, you know, most movies. Now, the point I'm trying to make with all of this is, and explaining all of that, is that not one of those theories really link up to this film. Now, at least two of those theories should link up to every single film. With The Wicker Man, we haven't even got an established character and the equilibrium does not even get restored. In fact, you need to it, it turns it on its head. It is restored, but not for the hero, but for the villain. And that's assuming we know who the hero or the villain is because we're not even so sure about it at the end. 
The lead up to the end where the sergeant gets sacrificed is asking for someone to rescue him or him fighting them off while they talk for a while before lighting the wicker man. But no, it happens exactly how they say it would happen in the movie. He dies in the end. It's like Hans Gruber pulling the trigger on John McClane. Boom, movie done. That's it. The hero's dead. This is exactly what happens here. There's no build up to a climatic ending. He dies. That's it. The equilibrium is restored. But for the pagans, the prop characters therefore end before you know they're reversed the binary opposition you could say is the you know pagans versus catholics or howie versus summer's isles but again the conflict is unknown to the audience as they deny the missing child and as for figuring out we are led to believe that the girl was a sacrifice there isn't many clues to indicate that howie himself is the real target and it does somehow stick to some if you turn it on its head but my point is very rare for a film to question all four of the narrative structures let alone one of them and this film was done in the 70s so it just shows how it just shows how ahead of its time it was trying to be to try and deviate from these structures. It's kind of like how, you know, Christopher Nolan or Tarantino are trying to do films in non-linear ways. I mean, that was sort of done in the 50s in a different vantage point with like Rashomon. But for someone to do it in a horror genre in the 70s was quite a big thing. I mean, The Wicker Man is undoubtedly one of the best horror films ever made. And even, you know, some would even go as far as saying one of the best British movies ever done. But what this film represents is an exploration of a genre that no one's really attempted. And only until recently did Hollywood try and replicate this sort of style. Um, I mean, I've been talking for way over 20 minutes now. I mean, this should really, I think this will conclude our Halloween special. I mean, I could talk about The Wicker Man for a while. I love this film. Um, I honestly think horror films are the best kind of films to watch because of the experience you have when you watch it. It triggers things that don't really happen in real life, but you're feeling the exact same feelings of the victim when someone pops out from the dark. This is rarely done in cinema to any of the other genres. And, you know, adrenaline from action, laughter from comedies. These things exist in the real world. But to be scared is something pure and spontaneous. And this is exactly why horror films are so popular. And people are obsessed with myths and monsters because they want to prove it. They want to explore these feelings. And it's humans to do so. It's human to do it because they're feelings that we want to, you know, find out about. And sometimes we just can't explain it. And that drives us to be even more curious about it. But... Listen, that's it with today's episode of The Wicker Man. Let me know if you know a film with a better twist. Uh, I can't think of maybe... I can think of maybe two, but this still always floats around as being one of the best. But please subscribe to my podcast on iTunes or Google or Spotify. And I'm on Instagram, Film Exploration AH, or lowercase or one word. And thank you for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry. And happy Halloween.